Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. Currently, we're looking at the stories of 1954. And in this episode, we'll take a closer look at Exhibit Peace. Exhibit Peace is, was published in IF in August of 1954. You can find it in the third volume of Philip K. Dick's Collected Works, Second Variety and Other Classic Stories by, by Philip K. Dick. So this is a story about history, it's about memory, it's about nostalgia, and how we deal with the past. So in the story we have a character, uh, as I guess we, in all stories we have characters, but in, in this one uh, our main character is named George Miller. He's dressed in this very anachronistic mid-20th century suit. Not anachronistic by you know, Philip Day Dick's, K. Dick's time, but, you know, from the future. They're, they're in the future. So he's dressed, you know, as be almost someone was walking around like a 1920s, you know, kind of fedora and raincoat or something. Like they're from some noir movie now. But he's dressed like kind of in a 50s businessman type suit. Yet he's taken this robotic train uh, so there's this automation is already part of life here he's taken it to his office in the history agency so he, he works in the agency that's responsible for maintaining and, and displaying history it's basically a historical museum is where he works but it seems to be a government is a government office when he arrives he's met by his boss controller Fleming who scolds him for insisting on dressing like the period that he studies you know, it's, again, it, if you were to try to parallel, it'd be like if your, your Roman history professor dressed up like a Roman soldier to class every day, you might say, well, yeah, you study Rome, but, you know, be reasonable and dress like a normal person. But Miller defends his strange actions, saying he's trying to develop empathy for the period of time he studies. Fleming, however, is worried that his eccentricities will be noticed by the board, which insists on total cultural homogeneity. So this oddness of how he dresses is put in, into a broader context and that everyone is supposed to dress the same, which kind of we can't help but laugh at a little bit because the 50s were accused of being, especially 50s business culture was accused of being homogenous. So everyone dressed the same. And so here we got someone in the future where you got the same kind of cultural homogeneity where everyone's supposed to look the same. Yet to look different, someone is dressing like a standard 1950s businessman, you know. We don't have that insistence on cultural homogeneity anymore, right? We're much more casual and relaxed and we, you know, people, even in business environments, can be a little bit more flexible about how they dress. And like, I don't have to wear a suit when I go outside. Now, the point here is that people are no longer able to speak their mind and express their individuality. Now, Miller's able to kind of use his work as an excuse to do this, but he's still breaking the rules of, of the society. He gets to work on his exhibit of the 1950s America, and he goes there, and he hears somebody in the exhibit. He thinks 
he thinks it's someone trying to discredit his work. So it's, it's interesting. These historians, instead of like writing books, they create these kind of dioramas. So it's more like a museum exhibit that he's making. And, you know, he he's worried that maybe this is going to lead to concerns about the historical accuracy of his exhibit. So he enters it. He admires its incredible detail and its accuracy. And now why is it able to be so accurate about the past? Well, the reason why is they use temporal scanners that allow them to look back at the 1950s directly. And there's Dick's done this before in other stories. Uh, James P. Crow has this kind of uh, ability to, to scan the past and look at it. Paycheck has a technology that's quite similar to this as well. So we've seen this before, but this is, this is the device. Now from the kitchen, he hears a woman's laughter inside. So he goes there and he sees a woman who starts talking to him and claims to be his wife. The house also has children. And this explains the children's voices he heard before. The woman begins asking Miller about a variety of concerns, like their son has hay fever. His, there's an upcoming camping trip. Miller's got this job at United Electrical Supplies. This woman's name, it turns out, is Marjorie. They live in a suburb of San Francisco. And Miller can look out of the window into the bay. In fact, you know, the first signs that something's weird going on is when the detail is so good that it didn't seem quite... You know, it even surprised him who worked on this project. <clears throat> Miller begins to actually worry about his relationship with his boss, Davidson, and their progress on the Thack Morton account. And he starts to actually think like this character's who life, who he's apparently living now. He's morphed into this role from being this run-of-the-mill historian in the future to being this 1950s businessman. He takes on this role of father of the household. He also takes on certain memories and worries and so he tells his wife that he's going to go see a psychiatrist to see what's going on. Now, again, this is something we've seen before in Dick's stories, especially in um, The Commuter, in which we have a, the character who works on a commuter train who, you know, pe weird people start showing up from places they shouldn't be. So he investigates and he finds a town that shouldn't exist. And when he goes there, he starts to live the life of someone. And it becomes unclear to him which is real, right? What's the real existence he has, the... The one in this town he that shouldn't exist, or his real town as a, you know, it's a train engineer. So next, Miller goes to the he's at the office of Adam Grunberg, his psychiatrist, and he tries to explain the confusion he feels um, when any you know they look at a newspaper, and he says that's when the time shift took place when he kind of looked at this newspaper in the office of the historical agency. But he starts to suggest that Grunberg, the psychiatrist, and all the other people that he's experienced are maybe just part of the history exhibit at the history agency. You know, he still consists these hundred years of the hundred years in the future, not kind of warped into this 1950s past. But he confesses to Grunberg, Grunberg that he hates his work at the historical agency and especially his bosses. Grunberg tries to work Miller through the events that led him to this feeling of disruption that, that brought him to the psychiatrist in the first place. He says, if you can find the exact place the change took place, maybe you can cross back over it and see what happens. Only one of the worlds can be true, is Grunberg's point of view. Miller concludes the opposite. He says that both worlds are real. He returns to his home and crosses back over the railings and reemerges in the history buildings. And so it does seem he's flipping back and forth between spaces. Fleming comes to see Miller again 
and Miller begins lighting a tobacco pipe that he brought from his home in the past. So he actually brought something back with him this time. And this is surprising because they have tobacco in the past. Fleming's period is... Well, they have tobacco in the past. They apparently don't have in the future, right? Now, Fleming, another historian, you know, he has a less desirable time to go to. He's from He studies the Hellenistic period, you know, the time of Alexander the Great. It has a low life expectancy, so it's not really a time he wants to go to. Miller tells Fleming that his period is quite healthy in that he has a wife and two children, and the state doesn't yet have total power over control of everything in life. And he decides to go and live in the 1950s. He says, if there's some kind of weird time portal that lets me go back there, and I have a whole life set up there, I might as well do it. The director of the history office, though, arrives and says, you're completely nuts about all this, and he threatens Miller with euthanasia, which apparently is the way they deal with people who are causing problems. He also threatens to destroy the exhibit, despite its stunning accuracy. Now, he is confident that since the exhibit is a time gate, he will not be destroyed if they dismantle the exhibit. So he sits down in the easy chair with a can of beer and begins to read the newspaper with the headline predicting total world destruction due to a Russian development of a cobalt bomb. So in a way, we almost have a, a story that's, that's a bit like uh, Breakfast at Twilight, where you have a character who's potentially putting himself in a situation where he's going to have to face a war in, in the future. Um, but we also have a very weird phenomenon here in which he idealizes the 1950s. But he's not paying attention to some of the more negative sides of life in the 1950s, like the threat of the Cold War. That's been sort of suppressed in our historical memory. So th this is also a story about what we remember from the past. In exhibit piece, we have a clear explanation from George Miller's transition between the two competing realities. We have a bit of a twist ending that leaves some question of the character's future. But by and large, it seems there really is a time portal and he's sort of living two lives at the same time. Miller is, due to his historical research, an anachronism. He wants to live in the period he studies and his obsession is so complete that he even tries talking like the people of the 1950s. Now we could also read it a different way and say he's actually from the 50s and he travels to the future to work during the day. But essentially both explain the fact that he is either, he's function, he's equally functional in both time periods, right? You know, it's not necessarily at home, but he kind of lives in both time periods at the same time. The reason for this is that somehow this historical exhibit created this time gate between these two time periods. The threat of Miller's employer to destroy the current exhibit creates this ambiguous ending we have. So is it destroyed because of the cobalt bomb made by the Soviets, or is it being destroyed in the future? And are what the f people in the future do to this historical exhibit able to affect the lives of the people in the past? Is he going back in time or is he just going into like a, a almost a quasi-fictionalized realm of like a virtual reality place? Perhaps that's uh, closer to the reality here, what's going on. Since in our timeline, it does not appear that the Earth was destroyed by the use of cobalt bombs and not in the timeline we're given of, of the world in the past, it's not something Miller seems to know about, and he's a historian. So if the world was destroyed by cobalt bombs, people would have known that, right? Miller reading this news from his easy chair may be the result of the efforts by the historical office to dismantle the exhibit. In this case, the reality might be closer to this delusion created by Miller 
based on his desire to live in the 1950s, or this creation of this exhibit, you know, created the, this alternate reality that he can enter into. Now, this ending kind of undermines the time gate theory, but it's a little more satisfying to me because it seems to allow us to explore this question of what drove Miller to a total break with his reality, whichever side is the really real for him. Now, Miller's world, the one in the future, timeline A, I guess, the one we're presenting in the opening pages of the story, is pretty horrible. But no one seems to appreciate how horrible it is. It takes someone either from the perspective of the 1950s or the reader, us, from the 1950s, that's when this was published, reading it and realizing how horrible it is. It's not explained why it's horrible, right? We don't get an explanation about what, how it got that bad. But one reason seems to be of the fulfillment of the well-functioning workplace. The day-to-day -day guards conform conformity in the workplace. Miller's confronted by his co-workers and then his boss over his failure to conform and to accept and to fulfill what it means to be part of this workplace. We have this absolutist workplace culture here. And that's the foundation of social control. And I think still in our world is work. And I, I was just reading this article about um, Taiwan. It was actually written by a, a wobbly active in, in Taiwan and I think to a lesser degree China, but he, he writes for both the IWW in China and Taiwan. You know, the IWW is a labor union, if you don't know. Uh, and he was, what he was saying is, you know, there's this idea of like what kind of white privilege in, in that Westerners face in, in Taiwan. I want to say all foreigners because a lot of the workforce is are immigrants but don't have this experience but there's this idea that the white people have this privilege here and it certainly exists but he says it's not it's not because it's easy to get a job or it's not because it's easy to get the hot date which is kind of what people usually think when they talk about that instead it's that white people can avoid this kind of very authoritarian workplace culture that children are trained into from a young age well you know everyone in taiwan if you ask them says the problem with education is it's too much road it's too much testing it's too much focus on the standardized test but no one does anything to fix it and this reason seems to be that they're educating people not in how to do the math problem or not how to read that thing but really how to be good workers and how to sacrifice their individual happiness and free time and joy for the institution and so this, this trains them to be good workers for when they go and they're expected to work 12 hours a day, right, for no extra pay, no overtime pay. And, you know, the context for this is currently there's this big debate about how to reform the labor law to give people more time off. And they did a reform and now bosses complain, so they're trying to roll it back, but they still don't want to say they're trying to take away free time from workers. So it's, it's kind of a political issue now. But anyways, the point is that we're trained from a very young age to accept the hierarchies in our workplace. And I don't think that's just in Taiwan. I think everywhere this happens to some degree. And that's what Miller here does not accept in the story. Miller is rejecting the homogenization of the workplace culture. Now, it's funny that because there's so many critiques of mass culture at Dick's time when Dick was writing this. He was, there were so many people, the one dimensional man, the organizational man. These books were all claiming that the modern economy creates homogenization, conformity. Everyone thinks the same. Yet Miller looks back at the 50s as this golden age of individualism and personal expression. And it's hilarious, especially like he doesn't go to the 
the beatniks. Maybe you could go to Kerouac and say, see, look at Kerouac. He shows this flourishing of individuals. But no, he finds this run-of-the-mill kind of middle-class home, suburban San Francisco, populated with office workers, and sees that as the golden age of individualism. That only reinforces how horribly homogenous and boring the world has become in this future. And this is what I want to focus on in the story, not really what happened, what's going on here, because the device isn't fully clear and it's open to interpretation. But what's not open to interpretation is he sees this time period of the 1950s as a great era of individual expression when certain people living in Dick's time wouldn't have seen it that way. So Fleming is brutally honest, his co-worker, quote, you're a political social unit here in this society. Take warning, Miller. The board has reports on your eccentricities. Then Miller replies to his friend, you're nothing but a minor bureaucrat in a vast machine. You're a function of an impersonal cultural totality. You have no standards of your own. In the 20th century, man had personal standards of workmanship, artistic craft, pride of accomplishment. These words mean nothing to you. You have no soul. Another concept from the golden age of the 20th century when man was free and could speak their minds, end quote. Now, I think you're supposed to laugh when you read this. I, I think, you're, you know, especially people who, like Dick, were critical of the homogenization of culture, of mass culture at that time period. You know, everyone goes to work in the same suit, in the same car, eating the same lunch, right? And, you know, so it, it's, it's almost a gag here. Now, we get here that uh, something that Dick talks a lot about, which is this tension between craft and progress and what's the value of work. And for Dick, work, valuable work, is the crafter, the tinkerer, the repairman. So this is something really we see in the character, most predominantly in the character of Thomas Cole in The Variable Man, which was published about a year before this one. So that, that's, that, that kind of theme is there. So it's a, it's a fun little story. I, I think the key of it is, you know, that this idea that somehow we're going to go from the 50s or from this present homogenization to some, like that individualism has a progressive future is, is, is doubted here. I think that's what it comes down to. You know, there's no guarantee that the future is going to be more libertarian and free than what we have now. We can lose what little freedoms we might still have. And the workplace is going to be key in undermining those freedoms. That's the warning here in Exhibit Piece. Well, I guess that does it for this episode. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, if you have an experience at work that makes you feel a little bit like Miller here, please let me know about that. What's your feeling about the workplace? Are we getting better? Are our workplace is becoming a little bit more egalitarian or a little bit more open to individualism? Or are we still kind of stuck in this 1950s homogenization? Is, is the internet is allowing individual expression or is it making us more think alike? Is it giving us more opportunities for self-expression or, you know, or is it diluting things so much that, that we, you know, is it condensing everything into sound bites, right? Uh, is, are we going the other way? Dick imagines a future with very little personal freedom. Is that how, where we ended up? Would he look at our world and be happy? I don't know. These, these are kind of questions I have when I, when I revisit this story. Anyways, uh, thank you again for listening. And I'll be back shortly with another one of Philip Dick's stories. Um, 
Please share your opinions below. Let me know what you think, and I'll try to respond. Anyway, see you next time. That leaving dies, that leaving